is good to be with you this morning. Always a privilege to preach the Word of God, a privilege to tell about the stories of our heritage as well. We'll do both during the morning service. And it's already been talked about a little, but our founding fathers and the influence upon them by the Baptist will enlarge a little upon that. We mentioned during the Sunday school hour about John Gano, the well-known Baptist preacher from New York. Gano was personal friends with George Washington. They knew one another prior to the war, for George Washington would worship at St. Paul's Episcopal Church there in New York City. You can go to that building today. There is a plaque on the wall next to the pew where George Washington sat. Now what the plaque won't tell you is what took place there. Now that's the Episcopal Church, which is the Church of England. It's manifest, the High Church Anglican, the Low Church Episcopalian, but it is the Church of England. And during the war, prior to and during, as Washington would have opportunity to attend, the pastor of that church, now he is loyal to the English. He will stand and pray that God would give England the victory. Now there's the commander-in-chief of the American forces, one of your members who is seated there, and you're praying that he'll be defeated. And in those days, when prayer was made, you either stood or you knelt. You never remained seated. That would be a sign of disrespect. When that man would pray, George Washington remained seated. He did so as a sign of protest. And again... History tells us what happened whenever he would leave services. He would walk to the top of Gold Hill, which was right in the middle of Manhattan. He'd walk to the top of Gold Hill, and there sat the Baptist meeting house. George Washington would sit beneath the window outside while John Gano preached on the inside, the Baptist preacher. Now, I know you've made the connection. The Episcopalians have already dismissed the Baptist service is still going on. So John Gano, no doubt, was long-winded. But General Washington, listen to that man preach. He also would have heard him pray, God, give America the victory. God, help General Washington. No wonder then that they became good friends. And during the war, there in New York City, the battle on Chatterton's Hill, part of the Battle of White Plains, uh, George Washington is looking on whenever the British start firing. And it caused such fear in the American ranks that the soldiers broke ranks and began to run. John Gano said, I knew, he was a chaplain, he said, I knew my place to be with the wounded and dying during that battle. But when I saw more than half the army fleeing from the enemy, I couldn't help myself. I grabbed a weapon and pressed towards the front. And as the Baptist preacher is showing his courage, he encourages others to stand with him against the enemy. And he earned for himself the nickname of the fighting chaplain. And he had such courage. At the conclusion of the war, Yorktown, Virginia, Cornwallis, he is forced to surrender. He did not follow proper protocol. He did not come out and surrender his sword to General Washington. In fact, he sent one of his subordinates out to give his sword. 
Washington refused to accept it because it was not proper. General Lafayette, fighting with the Americans, instead took his sword and gave it to General Washington as the symbol of victory. What did Washington do with that sword? He gave it to the one who had prayed for the victory. He gave it to his friend, the Baptist preacher, John Gano. You can still see that sword today. It's in the John Gano Chapel at William Jewell College in Independence, Missouri. And Washington knew the source of the victory. It was God. He knew the one who had prayed fervently for that victory. It was a Baptist preacher. Inseparably linked were those founding fathers with your Baptist forefathers in this country. Another chaplain in the war, Hezekiah Smith. He labored in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And he was a friend to Washington as well, one of the most prominent church planters in all of that area. New England planted over 50 Baptist churches. God used him in a great way. I was noticing I've never seen a Mason Hamlin piano in a Baptist church. Uh, but it was one of the most prominent piano makers in America. It was made in Haverhill, Massachusetts, the same place where Hezekiah Smith, one of your Baptist ancestors, uh, pastored for, for many years. Uh, if you ever want to sell it, let me know, and uh, I'll, I'll make it a matching set with the one I already have. But um, anyway, just everything brings Baptist history to my mind. Uh, I'm thinking of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson there in Virginia would often attend the Baptist church. He went to hear the Baptist preacher Andrew Tribble on occasion. And on one of those occasions, he invited the Baptist preacher to return to his home and dine with Jefferson. And he did. And while they are dining, the Baptist preacher has a chance to ask Jefferson what he thinks of the Baptist church. This was his reply. He said, I find in the Baptist church the purest form of democracy existing anywhere in the world and feel it to be the best basis upon which to found a new government. Those founding fathers learned democracy from Baptist. Baptist, the very form of government we have. It is a Baptist form of government. It's a Baptist principle. You see, you're your own congregation. Whenever you get ready to make decisions, whatever it is, do you call headquarters and ask them if you are allowed to do what you're going to do? No, you're autonomous. You can do whatever it is you decide to do, as long as it's according to Scripture. America was founded on Baptist principles. The First Amendment to the Constitution is a Baptist amendment. The Baptist preacher, John Leland, is responsible for coming up with that. And uh, amazing, even the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, that is a Baptist distinctive. In fact, during the war, every, every landowner in Rhode Island was required. Now, Rhode Island is a Baptist colony. It was founded by the Baptist. It's long been known as the Baptist colony. It's the only colony in America that had complete religious liberty, no persecution. Every landowner in that colony was required to own a weapon. Requirement. They knew that there was a right and a need to keep and bear arms. 
don't go away from here saying the preacher suggested we start a militia today. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just telling you the facts of history. And where you got the First and Second Amendment to your Constitution, it came from the Baptist. Even secular historians admit that fact. And uh, on and on, you could go talking about the, the interaction between the Baptist and how they affected the founding of our country. Benjamin Franklin, he was a friend to Baptists like Abel Morgan. The Preservation Society has in its possession two books for which we had to pay a lot of money. I don't maybe you have paid $3,200 for a book in, in your day. You say, that sounds like a lot of money. Well, it was a book written by Abel Morgan on the subject of baptism, for which he was well known in defending, and it was owned by David Jones, another one of the chaplains during the War for American Independence, and it was used in the first Baptist school in America that was founded for the purpose of training men for the ministry. That's in Hopewell, New Jersey. And uh, what made it so expensive was none of those things. All the reasons why I wanted it uh, was because of the Baptist connection. But it was printed by Benjamin Franklin. And, of course, those things are at a premium. And we have two copies of that book. Just some of the things that folks like yourself are helping us to preserve for future generations. Now, I am not naive enough to think they're going to last forever. In fact, I am well informed of the scriptural fact that one day the Lord is going to burn up this earth. All those books are going to be burned up with it. And at that time, you know what? I won't care. I won't care at all. Neither will you. We'll be with the Lord and that will be all that's important. But until that time, there are those who have designs on our heritage. There are those who would like to change us and who would like to control us. And we need to know our heritage from whence we came, who we are, and where we're going. And that's part of the work of the Preservation Society. And it's not our work exclusively. It's your work as well. And so uh, we, we just pray the Lord would use it. Benjamin Franklin, um, they talk about him. He's one of them. They talk about being an atheist. He wasn't. The official biography of Benjamin Franklin was written by a Baptist preacher, Jeremiah Chaplin. And in there he's going to give you the truth. And uh, Franklin would go hear George Whitfield preach very often when he would come into Philadelphia. And Whitfield was known for having such a voice that it could be heard audibly at a distance of one square mile. And Franklin was passing behind the crowd one day in Philadelphia where Whitfield was preaching and there stood an old lady whom he knew to be mostly deaf. And she's standing there looking at the preacher from a great distance, and she's weeping. He communicates as best he can with her and says, I know you can't hear what he's saying. Why are you weeping? And she says, you're, you're right, Ben. I can't hear a word he's saying, but I can tell by the way he's wagging his head that he's preaching about my Savior. And uh, it had an effect upon her. And Benjamin Franklin often said that when the preachers came to town, He'd leave, he'd go hear them, but he'd leave his wallet at home because he was afraid they'd get all his money. And because he'd be so moved to give by what he heard. And it is good to hear moving preaching. Something that we need. And to pray.
praise the Lord that you are uh, an independent, Bible-believing, Baptist church with a King James Bible and a preacher who preaches the King James Bible. That's a good thing. Can't be beat. Psalm 94, if you turn with me to that portion of God's Word. The 94th Psalm. I like your new hymnal. I worked 10 years on this, by the way. Putting this to, uh, together is just uh, an amazing experience. Another way that we hope to preserve our heritage. For you see, in this hymnal, there is more Baptist involvement than any other hymnal in existence. As much as 70% when you consider the hymn writers and the tune composers, as much as 70% Baptist involvement. And uh, it is, it's very good. There is, we'll talk about one more Baptist chaplain in the War for American Independence before we read our text. And the hymn 795, you might want to look at it in your hymnal. 795, it's called Welcome Everlasting Life. Welcome Everlasting Life, and it is penned by Richard Furman. Richard Furman was a South Carolina Baptist. Furman University is named after him. Richard Furman had a great reputation as a preacher, one of those separate Baptist preachers. Many people converted under his ministry, many churches founded, and he had a reputation for being a patriot. Not that he fought so much in the conventional sense, but he labored in prayer. General Cornwallis said that American officers were to be captured. He said Baptist preachers are to be shot on the spot because they were the more dangerous of the two. And he put a price on the head of Richard Furman, the Baptist chaplain, saying this, that he feared the prayers of that Baptist preacher more than all of the weapons of the enemy. Imagine that. Somebody wanting to kill you because you, you can pray. And folks, you don't have to be great in this, eyes, in this world's eyes to do something for God. Just be willing to pray. Richard Furman, his lesser known endeavors is that he penned songs. And here's an example of a, a famous Baptist preacher writing a song about a famous Baptist preacher. For the song itself concerns the testimony of Thomas Hawks. And we're going to talk about martyrs this morning. Thomas Hawks was one of them. In the year 1555, that Baptist preacher from England was put to death for his faith. He was burned at the stake. And before he was led to the place of his execution, his congregation visited him and said, Preacher, if you could, when you're in the fire, if you could give us some indication that the Lord is sustaining you, it will be a great encouragement to us. It's amazing, isn't it? That's how your church members are. Preacher, you're going to be burned to death, but if you could encourage us a little bit, uh, we'd appreciate that. And that's what happened. And that's what the song is about. 
And the story goes, and it was verified, he was bound to the stake with the cords. The wood was piled around him, and it was lit. The fire would take his life. They thought he was already dead whenever the cords were burned in two. His hands were already burned to stubs. Fingers burned off. And what he did at that point, the people couldn't believe. Thinking he was already dead, he revived and he raised his hands above his head. His, ha his head, and he clapped three times. He clapped those stubs together and began to praise the Lord. And all of those church members were encouraged. And he went out of here praising the Lord. That's what the song is about. You can see verse 11. The fire was lit and fiercely blazed. The martyr long did I. Thrice clapped his scorched hands and raised to heaven his raptured eye. For me, my Lord, was crucified. I hail the cross of Christ. Welcome eternal life, he cried, and soared to endless rest. The blessing. Songs that have a story. A hymnal that helps preserve our heritage. And we'll talk about some more of these martyrs this morning. If you'll follow with me in the 94th Psalm. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, My foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity, and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the good time we've already enjoyed here today. God, we've been able to sing together. We've come before the throne of grace together. And Lord, may we now together hear gladly your word and the stories of our heritage. God, we ask that they would have an effect upon us.
And if there be one here today who does not know you as Savior, Lord, would you convict that soul and show them their greatest need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to speak about Baptist martyrs. A martyr is one who suffers or dies for the truth. Now, there have been many people across the years who have died for lies. Those who perpetrated attacks upon the United States of America, 9-11, years ago, they died for a lie. They believed that lie and were willing to give themselves to it. How great, then, one who dies for the truth. The king of the martyrs did so. Lord Jesus Christ. He did not die for a lie, but he established the cause for which others would gladly suffer and give their lives. And we'll speak about them this morning. There have been books written about these martyrs whom we will mention. Perhaps you can find them. A book called Baptist Martyrs by J. Newton Brown. It's a concise account. There is a larger volume written by J. Thielman von Braut called Martyrs Mirrors. And it will give the accusations, the arrest records, the trial records, the execution records as well. And it is very, a very important work for Baptists. And we need to know about our heritage. While we can talk about all kinds of modern and historic figures, those who may or may not have had anything to do with God, and it's good to know history, but should we not know our own heritage? Should we not know those who suffered for the truth and who named the name of Baptist? We ought to know them. We ought to make sure that our children and our grandchildren are familiar with them as well. It is, if you will, going along with the theme in Sunday school, it is a written memorial and even an oral memorial that we can pass along that causes people to remember their faith. We know that the scripture references the word martyr three times. Acts chapter 22 is the first time it talks about Stephen. Revelation chapter 2, the second time it talks about Antipas, my faithful martyr. Nothing else is said about Antipas in scripture but that. But isn't that something to be said? Antipas, my faithful martyr. If something were to be said about us when we are gone, wouldn't we like it to be said that we were faithful? Yeah. We're faithful. And then in Revelation 17, the last time that the word martyr is used, it is talking about the persecution of Babylon the Great against your Baptist ancestors. And it says that that institution was drunken with the blood of the martyrs. Martyrs, those who suffered and died for the truth. We don't know the names of all the martyrs. Millions, now millions of your Baptist ancestors, they were known by various names throughout history, beginning with the second century Montanists, the Novatians, the Donatists, the Albigenses, the Waldensians, the Petrobrusians, the Henricians, the Arnoldists, the Lollards, on and on you could go talking about the different names by which people who embrace the same scriptural faith and practice the same baptism that you and I practice, they were known by a variety of names, all of them known by Anabaptists across the years, but among them, as we read their stories, they were horribly persecuted. Millions 
upon millions of your Baptist ancestors were put to death for their faith. It is a well-recorded fact in history. But just as interesting, perhaps more so, is the fact that because Baptists believe in soul liberty, because we believe that every person has a right before God to decide what they will believe or whether they will even believe or not, that that's a matter between God and each individual, Baptists have never, there's not one instance in recorded history, not one, of a Baptist ever persecuting anyone. Not one. We've been put to death, slaughtered, unmercifully. We'll give you some instances this morning. But we have never persecuted. Because we believe in soul liberty. The names of many of them are lost. All we can say is God knows. God keeps the record. It's like it is over there in Hebrews chapter 11 when you get to the end and it lists all those names in the hall of faith and it, then it says, and others, and others, and others. Some names we do know. Some, in fact, most we don't. But God is keeping the record. And will not the judge of all the earth do right? He will. And he'll set things right one day. We can tell you some names this morning. Arnold of Brescia. A group called the Arnoldists, a Baptist group, were named after him. Arnold of Brescia lived in the 12th century. In 1155, he was captured and condemned at Rome. He was crucified, his body burnt, and the ashes thrown into the Tiber River. There's a monument erected there to Arnold in, in Rome, Italy. Many of his followers were put to death as well. He died because of his faith, no other reason. Not because he was a criminal, not because he was a lawbreaker, but because he was a Baptist. That's the reason why he was put to death. Paulicians, another of those ancient Baptists who lived in the Byzantine Empire. And it's amazing how Baptist history parallels Bible history. The place where your Bible originated, the manuscripts that underlie your King James Bible are known as Antiochian or Syrian or Byzantine type text. Of course, the Christians were called Christians first in Antioch. According to Acts 11, verse 26. And so the same place where people were first called Christians is where your Bible, the manuscripts of Eliot, originated. And there in that Byzantine Empire is where one of the most well-known ancient Baptist groups lived, the Paulicians. And they would copy by hand portions of Scripture and books of Scripture and they would distribute them all over that empire, leading people to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before it, they were put to death, and they were hated. A group of those Paulicians came into England around 1160. They were apprehended for their faith and suffered for it. A Baptist people, they had administered to them the heretics test. If you fail this test, you're to die. What was the test? They took a hot iron straight from the fire and pressed it to the flesh. If you burned, you were a heretic. If it didn't burn you, you were not a heretic. Who could pass such a test? No one. So they were branded as heretics. In the winter, in Oxford, England, they're stripped to the waist. They're paraded through the streets where people pelted them with insults, rocks, anything that they could throw. And they are forced out of the town. And there they suffered 
and died by exposure and hunger. And anyone who dared to help them was promised to suffer the same fate. What was their great crime? They're Baptist. That was it. Baptist. Folks, we have a wonderful heritage. A wonderful heritage. And we ought to remember it. Jerome of Prague, another Baptist, he was put to death in Constance, Germany. I've been privileged to be at the spot there where he was burned at the stake. And to think how he suffered. He was called the Bohemian heretic. That's what they called us. We learn much about our faith from our enemies. Rome recorded all of the things they did to us, thinking that they were leaving a legacy of exterminating heresy. What they did in reality was to leave records of how they put your Baptist ancestors to death. They called Jerome a heretic. By the way, they call you heretics today as well. That's still what they believe. It's still in, in their official documents. They still call you Anabaptist, just as they've always called it the Baptist. Jerome was burned at the stake May 20th, 1416. He defended himself, his faith, and he died unafraid while he was singing a hymn. But he died for being a Baptist. You see, as Christians, they were saved from the flames of hell. But it didn't keep them from dying in the flames of the stake. But they were willing to suffer. They didn't want to. If they could avoid it, they would, but they would not avoid it by denying their faith. They remained steadfast in what they believed. It wasn't just the Catholics who put Baptists to death, for those whom we have already mentioned, were put to death under Catholic reigns. But the Protestants persecuted the Baptists as well. They both hated us equally. Why? Because we preached the gospel. They did not. We preached that water cannot save while they believed that it did. And so they took personally, we can understand why, our preaching that the blood of Jesus Christ alone can cleanse from sin and water never can. And so they persecuted us. Felix Mance was the first victim of the reformers. He was drowned in the Limit River, January the 5th, 1527, as he was led to the place of his execution. The Protestant preacher walking along beside him urged him, if you'll deny your faith, if you'll rec recant what you believe, we'll let you go. His mother and his brother walked behind him to the place of his execution. All the while, urging him never to deny his faith and to suffer firmly for the Lord Jesus Christ. Parents, grandparents, would you be able to do that for your children? If their lives were in jeopardy for their faith, could you tell them, don't ever deny that faith? We should, shouldn't we? Isn't our faith more important than our lives? Isn't our testimony most important? It should be. Felix Mance died for his faith there in Zurich, Switzerland. It's a well-marked spot. If you go to that country, you can see many places where the Baptists suffered there in Switzerland. George Wagner was burned at Munich February the 8th, 1527. They were somewhat merciful to that Baptist. 
They attached a bag of gunpowder around his neck so it would dispatch him more quickly. And it did. Leonard Kaiser was burned at the stake in Bavaria in 1527, one of the most unusual stories that you'll ever hear. On the way to his execution, he was being pushed in a cart by a servant, probably because they had tortured him so much he was unable to walk. In front of the cart walked a judge. Kaiser leaned over and he plucked a flower from the grass and he made a proclamation. If you have condemned me justly, you'll be able to burn my body and this flower. But if you have condemned me wrongly, you will not be able to burn my body or this flower. He was tied to the stake. The wood was piled around. The fire was lit. It cost him his life. But when all the wood was consumed, there lay his body with not so much as a hair singed. And as his body fell to the ground, his hand fell open, and there was the flower unburned as well. It bothered him, them so much that they cut his body in pieces, built a new fire, and put the pieces of his body in that fire. When the fire was consumed on that occasion, there still lay the pieces of his body unconsumed. Unconsumed. We know the story because Martin Luther, the reformer, heard of it and traveled to that place himself to verify that it was true, and he recorded it for history. But we know the story in a better way because while history tells us the judge who heard that proclamation and who had condemned Kaiser, upon seeing what happened, he went mad. But the servant who had pushed him to the place of his execution and had also heard what he said, when he witnessed what happened, he didn't go mad. He went to the Savior, and he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and embraced the same faith and joined with the Baptist. He told the story as well. Six Snyder, another one. In 1531, in the Netherlands, the law offered a reward for the apprehension of Baptist preachers. Isn't that amazing? We hate these Baptists. We hate them. And Six Snyder was apprehended. He was beheaded March 20th, 1531. But his martyrdom had an effect on those who witnessed it. It was Tertullian, the second century Montanist, a Baptist, who first made the statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You put them to death and the faith grows. The more you kill them, the more they multiply. And when Seek Snyder was beheaded, a young man by the name, name of Minnow Simons is watching you're familiar with the Mennonites. They were, and they still call themselves Anabaptists. Their faith has changed some. Their practice has changed some. They're not, after the leader, Menno Simons, from whom they are named, they're not like him anymore. But for years and years, that man, having become a Baptist, when witnessing the death of Seek Snyder, he firmly taught Baptist principles to his followers. And they embraced them and spread them. It does matter when we leave behind a good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Ellert Jensen was martyred with four men and three women in Amsterdam, Holland, March 20th, 1549. He remarked, this is the most joyful day in my whole life. You're going to be put to death, 
and you say this is the most joyful day in my whole life, well, what about verse 19 of the 94th Psalm? In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. You get to the to place of death, here's what you think about. You think about those that are going to be left behind. You think about work unfinished. You think about who's going to continue in the faith. Who's going to continue your work? Those are the things you think about. All things that might be troublesome or could be. But he remarks, this is the most joyful day of my whole life. Why? In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Regardless of what was going to be left behind or what they were about to do with him, he could make such a statement because he was shortly to be in the presence of his Savior. He was shortly going to be in heaven. He was shortly going to be away from the tempter, away from all persecutors, be with those who were like-minded, never have to pay a bill again. Folks, that's enough to rejoice. And Christians usually do when they're on their deathbed because things only get better. And really and truly, the scripture does say rightly, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. What a blessing it is to know that we can face such trial with joy. Ilkin and Phi, two Baptists. Ilkin was beheaded. Phi was strangled and burned for his faith. The Catholics questioned them before they put them to death. And they asked them about transubstantiation. Maybe you're not familiar with that Catholic teaching that says that a priest takes the wafer, the bread, and he places a blessing upon it that changes the substance of that bread from regular bread to the very body of Christ. Transubstantiation. That's what they believe. So that when they partake of that wafer, they believe that they're eating the very body of Christ. It's a misinterpretation and misapplication of John chapter 6. They asked Ilkin and Phi what they thought about transubstantiation. And Ilkin said, knowing he was going to be put to death, he said, I know nothing of your baked God. Amazing. You can have that kind of boldness when facing such a horrible end. Psalm 44, verse 22, Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So it was with the great Baptist preacher in Switzerland, Balthasar Hubmeyer. Hubmeyer was one of the leaders of the Baptist. He suffered often for his faith, and yet he was very bold. He'd go into the wilderness, and he'd step out into the streets and into the, the side roads, and he'd preach the gospel of Christ, and great crowds would throng to hear him. Except he lives in a country that is a Protestant country. It's against the law to practice your faith as a Baptist. Put Baptists to death there. They arrested Balthasar Hubmeyer and they detained him in the heretic's tower where they subjected him to great torture. They put him on the rack, the instrument where they bind all the limbs, and then they turn the wheel that stretches the limbs until they often are pulled from their joints. What's the purpose of the torture? Just to see them suffer? No. 
They're wanting to gain a confession. They want him to deny his faith. They want him to give the names of his fellow believers and fellow laborers. They want him to say that he will change. Now, I don't know what that would be like. I don't want to know. The part of the reason for preaching the message about the martyrs is that while we have religious liberty here in the United States of America because of the bloodshed and because of the teaching and the influence of Baptist, we're not very far from that being taken away from us. I hope it never is. But if it is, shouldn't we know that people before us have suffered? Shouldn't we know how they endured those sufferings? Wouldn't it come in handy for us in those instances? It would. Balthasar Hubmeyer is just that way. He was racked and racked and tortured, and he finally agreed to recant to deny his faith. The Protestants were ecstatic. Yorick Zwingli, who had been his friend, had had him tortured. And he was thrilled, so thrilled that he agreed to deny his faith that he set a public day for it. The Munster Cathedral, there in Zurich, Switzerland, you can still visit, it's still standing today. A large edifice was filled on the day that Hubmeyer was to deny his faith. Baptists were there to see if it was true. The Protestants were there hoping to delight in his denial of being a Baptist. Yorick Zwingli, because of the great crowd that had gathered, took an opportunity to preach to them. And then he had Hubmeyer brought to the pulpit where he was to deny his faith. I can't imagine what that would be like, but verses 17 and 18 of the 94th Psalm could have been going through his mind. I don't know, but it certainly applies given the result. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. And as Hubmeyer is led to the pulpit, bent and broken from his persecution, brought to the place where he is to publicly deny his faith, when he got there, his foot didn't slip. The mercy of God held him up. In fact, history tells us that he straightened himself as much as possible. He cupped his hands to his mouth, and he said, Infant baptism is not of God. He didn't deny the faith. He stood firm. The place was thrown into an uproar. The Baptist stood and cheered him. He was led back to the tower where he was again tortured, but miraculously was able to make his escape. He continued to preach for a while until finally being reapprehended, he was burned at the stake March 10th. 1528, simply for his faith as a Baptist. Three days later, his wife was placed in a sack and thrown into the Danube River just for being his wife. Amazing what our Baptist ancestors had to endure. Elizabeth, a former nun, has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and is arrested in Belgium January the 15th, 1549. It's one thing to think about these men being persecuted. Another thing to think of what these women had to endure. You see, they put her thumbs in the thumb screws and her ankles in the ankle screws. And then they tightened those screws until, until they pierced through the flesh 
into the bone, and the blood would come forth. Why? Because she was a Baptist. That's the only reason. Because of her faith. They wanted her to deny what she believed, but she wouldn't. They wanted to gain information from her, but she wouldn't give it. They asked her what she thought about transubstantiation. Do you believe that the priest can change this bread into the very body of Christ? And she said this while being tortured. With the Lord in heaven, how can they be eating him down here? They put her to death. She was placed in a sack and drowned March 27, 1549. Another lady, Anne Askew. The Bible tells us in Psalm 94, verse 5, They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. The regular occurrence. I know this is talking about Israel, the direct application doctrinally, but we'll see in a moment it's talking about all martyrs across the centuries. And Anne Askew was burned at the stake in England in 1546. She distributed books and tracts as a Baptist in the court of King Henry VIII. She was arrested for her faith. And she was placed on the rack. It's one thing to think of Hubmeyer being racked, but this lady placed on the rack and they're turning the wheel and stretching her body. And they ask her what she thinks about transubstantiation. Do you believe that the priest can change this wafer into the very body of Christ? And she said very wisely, I have often read in the scripture where God made man, but I have never read therein where man made God, nor do I ever hope to. It bothered them so greatly they ordered the executioner to rack her again, and he refused. Wouldn't do it. So those two Catholic priests rushed upon her, and they turned that wheel until every limb of her body was pulled from its joint. She had to be placed in a chair and carried to the stake where she would be burned to death. The priest all along the way saying, we'll let you live if you'll deny your faith. Even tying her to the stake, he's saying, if you'll simply deny your faith, you can live. What did she say? She said, I came not here to deny my Lord. And she was burned at the stake there in 1546 in England. Amazing what the people had to endure. The last martyr burned at the stake in England, April 11, 1612, was Edward Whiteman. Whiteman was a Baptist preacher. He was put to death for no other reason except preaching against infant baptism. But on that occasion, King James himself came to witness the burning of the Baptist preacher. And he made the proclamation that never again, he found it so horrible, he said, never again in England will anyone be burned at the stake. And he stopped it. A good legacy for him, as if he didn't already have such a good legacy. A Baptist gave his life for the Savior but got that cruel practice stopped. One more story. Geronimus Segerson and his wife Liskin, both Baptists, arrested, placed in the same prison, though in different cells. 
He was burned at the stake September the 2nd, 1551. She, the same day, was placed in a sack and drowned. They were able to communicate with each other by letters. Some of those letters have survived. And one of the things that he wrote to her was, I hope to see you shortly under the altar of Christ. That shows that he had great hope, that he had great faith, but it also shows that he had great knowledge of the scripture. For you see here in Psalm 94, the Bible says in verse 3, Lord, how long? Notice that phrase. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? Again, for the third time in verse 4, how long shall they utter and speak hard things and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? How long? How long? How long? Look to Revelation 6. Revelation 6, and here's the link between Psalm 94 and the martyrs across the ages. Revelation 6, remember Segerson's writing to his wife, I hope to see you shortly under the altar of Christ. He knew that's the place where martyrs gathered, and that they gathered there for a reason. Verse 9 of Revelation 6, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Hear those same words, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The martyrs, according to Scripture, are there under the altar of Christ now praying. How long? They're praying not for vengeance. They're not praying that, that God would put people to death. They are praying for justice. They're praying that God would do what only God can do. You see, he can exact vengeance. I cannot. I'd do it the wrong way. I'd be in the flesh. God cannot do things the wrong way. He is the only one that can execute vengeance because the scripture says vengeance belongeth unto him. It's his to do. All of these evil deeds perpetrated against your ancestors will not go unrewarded or unpunished. The Lord will take care of it. And that's something that we need to know. We have chosen to be Christians. We have chosen to be Bible-believing Baptists. We must live with that choice. And there may be a time that we are called upon to die because of that choice. How will we die when we're persecuted? Will we be like Paul and Silas, thrown in jail, put in the stocks? We could have lamented. Instead, they sang and they prayed. The stories we have told you of those who are being martyred. They didn't lash out against their persecutors. They looked to God. They often said as Jesus did when he died on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Felix Mances, he was being thrown into the river there, said, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. There was nothing about vengeance. Instead, they prayed to the God of vengeance. And seeing it happening for so long in so many places, they said, how long? How long? And that teaches us a scriptural truth. Something about God. In your King James Bible, the word patience is never, ever used 
to describe God. You do not serve a patient God. The book of Romans says he is the God of patience. If you need it, you can find it from him. But he's not patient. Why? Because patience means enduring that over which you have no control. Can't describe God as being patient. He can control anything, anytime he wishes. On the other hand, a word that's been removed from the modern versions, long-suffering is the way that God is described. What does long-suffering mean? It means to endure that which you can control. Some of you could give testimony that you ought to be burning in hell right now, but instead, God, in his long-suffering, gave you what you needed instead of what you deserved. That's long-suffering. He endured. He put up with us so that we might be saved. That's been his pattern throughout the history of mankind. Long-suffering. He didn't have to put up with us. He chose to. And wisely, the prayer is, how long? How long? How long? You see, he's long-suffering. He's not ever suffering. There's coming a day when he says it's enough. There's coming a day when he will return. And he'll return in power and great glory and vengeance. And he will exact it as only he can. He will exact it on the earth. He will exact it at the great white throne. And it will be an eternal vengeance done justly and done rightly. And that's what we need to understand. That the people who did these things did not get away with it. They didn't. The idea and the principle, if we turn to 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. And the scripture here that is oft quoted is also oft misapplied. 2 Timothy 3. The Apostle Paul is being moved to speak of his own testimony. Verse 10, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. For years... I thought this was saying that if you live for Jesus, you will be persecuted. That is not what the scripture is saying. While millions and millions of your Baptist ancestors were persecuted and suffered for their faith, there have been many millions and millions and millions more, and you have known many good, godly Christians who were never persecuted. The scripture is not saying that if you live godly, you will be persecuted. No, the scripture is telling us what we have already noticed in the message this morning. How godly people respond to persecution when it comes. Your King James Bible defines itself. And the definition of the word suffer in verse 12 is given to you in verse 11. What persecutions I endured. When the apostle was persecuted, did he persecute others? When the Lord Jesus was reviled, did he revile again? No. 
He endured. That's the definition of the word suffer in verse 12. It's to endure. The scripture is saying, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They will endure the persecution joyfully, maintaining a good testimony to the very end, speaking highly of the Lord Jesus Christ, yea, even preaching the gospel at times, maybe singing a hymn on their way out, maybe clapping their hands over their heads and praising Jesus as they head to eternal life. That is suffering persecution. It's enduring it. That's what we've been called to do. That's what the message is about this morning. Giving you a history lesson to help you in the future and to help your family. Use these martyrs to tell them not only what happened and what happens at times when you live for the Lord Jesus Christ, but we teach them not only how to live their lives glorifying Him, we ought to teach them how to glorify him through death. Whether that's being persecuted or we get the sentence of death from the doctor, we ought to glorify him on our way out as much as we ever have in our lives. The only ones who can do that, first of all, are those who are saved. And secondly, those who are living for the Lord Jesus Christ scripturally. And I'd encourage you by this message this morning to live for him in just that way. If he does not ask you to die for him, he has asked you to live for him, to give him your all. As the preacher comes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our heritage. God, would you use it to be an encouragement to the saints this morning. In Jesus' name.